Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off a week ago in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. We saw how the church is counted by God, protected by God, measured by God, measured in its worship, measured in its devotion. He knows who belongs to him. He knows who does not belong to him. And tonight we have this interlude between trumpet 6 and 7 that's continuing on through the first half of chapter 11, and in it we will see what the measured church is doing in the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. During this age, the church witnesses for Christ, and we will see the witness of the church symbolized in two witnesses in these verses, and through the symbol of the witnesses we understand what the church is doing until Jesus returns, and how the world is responding to what the church is doing until Jesus comes back. And by the time we get to the end tonight, we'll be wrapping up this interlude, and we'll be preparing for the end of the third cycle, the blowing of the seventh trumpet, and kingdom come. Before I read the text, I'm going to say it's another passage that's hotly debated. It's packed with all sorts of rich imagery that requires us to keep Old Testament uh, at hand as we are studying it. And like so much of the ten chapters that we have read so far, there's all sorts of numbers and, and symbols, and we will cut through all of that to the best of our ability. It can be confusing. It can be perplexing. But what's important for us to remember is that we're dealing with a piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature when we're dealing with the book of Revelation, and we don't want to get lost in the weeds, right? It is a picture book that is communicating to us the big picture of the church and what she is doing until Jesus comes back and the fact that she can hold on in hope knowing that he is going to return and that she will not be defeated because he is not defeated and they will be conquerors in him. If we don't get bogged down, I think we'll see that in this passage tonight. We'll see the witness of the church, the suffering of the church. We will see the exaltation of the church. So let me start reading for us starting in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of that great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of the scriptures tonight. There's darkness, Lord, in these verses, in the sense that we see what the world wants to do to us and what the world will do to uh, your church, God. During this time, we wait on your son's return, God, but there's also great hope in these verses because we see the promise of the resurrection and we know, God, that we will not remain in the grave. That even if they want to chop off our heads, God, for proclaiming this gospel and proclaiming the truth that you have given us, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that he is crucified, and that he is resurrected, and that if anybody puts their trust in him, they will be saved. This gospel, God, we will preach it, and the world will come against us, but we will be conquerors in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would be all the more motivated to go about the mission after we see tonight uh, the promises concerning your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We start with authority being granted to these two witnesses who will prophesy for 1260 days wearing sackcloth. 
Uh, the identity of these two witnesses does not get people quite as emotional as the interpretation of the temple in the first two verses because the interpretation of the temple seems to have political implication. Though I want to say, even though I don't see the temple as being literal, I still support Israel because I'm an American and I like the fact that there's a beacon of democracy hanging out in the Middle East, right? And so I support Israel for that reason. Um, and, uh, and I love Israel. And I believe that there will be a revival among ethnic Israel uh, in the end. I think that Romans 9 through 11 shows us that. But these verses that follow those first two don't get people quite as emotional because there is not that political implication. Some say this is Moses and Elijah because of the power and the miracles that are associated with the two witnesses in verses 5 and 6. Some say this is Enoch and Elijah because they are the two men that don't die in the Old Testament. And so since they are not, they're not dead, it's like God has brought them uh, back to do this witnessing and then they're going to be killed so they can resurrect in the same pattern as everyone else. Uh, other people say that it's just two random witnesses. Some people say it's literal people. Some people say it's not literal people. These opinions do not tend to fall down interpretive lines. What does fall down interpretive lines is whether or not they're literal people or whether or not they're symbolic. But the identity of them does not fall down interpretive lines. The left-behind view or dispensationalism would say these are two witnesses that are literal people who preach during the second half of a seven-year tribulation. But not all dispensationalists will agree on the identity of these two witnesses. I will argue, in keeping with the understanding of Revelation as a picture book, uh, that using Old Testament imagery to communicate the new covenant to us, uh, these witnesses are not literal, but they are symbolic, as it goes with so much of Jewish apocalyptic literature. I believe they're symbolic of the same thing the temple was symbolic of. It's the church. I think that John is showing us the same people, the same, uh, the same body, if you will, the church, but showing us with a different symbol. And here, the church is, uh, or, or the, the witnesses, they are telling us something about the nature of the church's witness during this time in between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. During this time uh, of the final period of history before Jesus comes back and the day of the Lord arrives. There's two of them because testimony is only confirmed in Hebrew culture if there are two or more witnesses. And by the way, no matter what you believe about Revelation and no matter what you believe about the witnesses, you believe there's two of them because of this reason. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one is to die shall be put to death. We preach a gospel of life, but if people reject the gospel of life, they are condemned to death in judgment. And as we stand up and we witness to this um, as the church, we are warning people of that death that is to come. That is why they're wearing sackcloth, because they are proclaiming judgment to the world. And so like Daniel wearing sackcloth as he is mourning the exiled Jewish nation in their spiritual state in Daniel 9, these witnesses are mourning the dying world and how many people in the world will continue to reject their message despite their warnings. These witnesses are given authority by the Lord to do their prophetic ministry which is a reference to the authority that Christ has granted to the church to fulfill the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, just last night, my best friend got in touch with me and he said, man, would you pray for my son, Evan, because he just told me and my wife, Callie, that he wants to be baptized. So they call little Evan Ebear, okay? And Ebear's seven years old. So we're praying for Ebear's salvation because he wants to be baptized. On what authority does my friends, my friends Kenny and Callie, um, on what authority do they teach these things and preach these things to Ebear, to Evan, their son? And, and on what authority do they baptize him? It's on the authority of Christ. The same authority that, that they would go, if they were to go to Africa or they were to go to Asia or to go to some foreign country on a mission trip, they would go in the authority of Christ. They're teaching their son in that same authority. Wherever we are fulfilling the Great Commission, be it in our home or out there uh, in the ends of the earth, we do it by the authority of Christ.
Also, when people come to us and they say, I believe I'm a Christian, I want to join your church, we affirm their salvation by bringing them into our membership. And Jesus talks about this sort of authority that the church has to be able to do that in Matthew 18. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So in the same way that we do not preach the full counsel of the gospel in our own authority, but we preach it in the authority of Christ. When we accept people into our membership, when we affirm their salvation, when we are binding and loosing in that way, we don't do it in our own authority. We do it under the authority of the word. We do it in the authority of Christ. As the kingdom is expanding, as the Great Commission is being fulfilled, it's all being done in Jesus' authority. And so these witnesses here, they also have authority. And they are going to prophesy, we see, for 1,260 days. Now, I know that some of you were confused at the end last week, okay? Um, Daniel's 70 weeks, like if I had my druthers, all right, I, I would split Revelation 1 and 2 up into two sermons, and we would just do Temple one week and Daniel 70 uh, the next week, because Daniel's 70 weeks, you could take 20 minutes just dealing with Daniel 9, 24 through 27. In fact, if you want more clarity, I did just that on a podcast that you can find on our Spotify podcast feed, or you can find on our Facebook if you scroll back to last Thursday, we posted it because I know some of you wanted a bit more clarity, okay? Um, but a little bit of review here, and I, I don't want to go too deep because I just don't want to confuse and I want to be as clear as I can, so let me try my best. I believe the 1260 days that we're seeing in the third verse is just another way of saying 42 months. Right? Remember we saw the 42 months back in verse 2 last week? It's another way of saying three and a half years, or as we'll see in a few moments, another uh, way you could do it is three and a half days. What we're talking about is the last half of Daniel's symbolic 70th week. I taught last week that Daniel 9, the text, pushes, I believe, us to see Daniel's 70th week as symbolic. The first half of the week refers to the saving ministry of Jesus. And listen, whether you take the week symbolically or literally, if we understand it to be a prophecy, Daniel 9, about the freedom that is coming to the Jews in the Babylonian exile ending, and then it's ultimately fulfilled in the freedom that Christ brings from sin, it's an amazing text no matter what. Because in Daniel 9.24, Daniel says these six things are going to happen. Transgression will be finished, sin will be ended, iniquity will be atoned for, everlasting righteousness will be established, a holy place is anointed, prophecy is sealed. All of that is accomplished when Jesus comes to make strong covenant with his people. When he comes to establish the new covenant. So then Daniel's 70th week is a symbolic time allotted by God where Christ does the work and the church is the witness to that work. Some say the first half of the week begins at his baptism. Some say it begins at the triumphal entry. I, I don't think it matters too much. What matters is that in the first half of Daniel's 70th week, Jesus atones for the sin of his people. That's what matters. The last half of the 70th week would be the church age, when the church is on her mission to advance the kingdom. I think that the last half of Daniel's 70th week probably begins after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The 1260 days that we saw in verse 2, or that we're seeing here in verse 3, they are a symbol telling us that the church will prophesy her authoritative witness for the entirety of the church age or the last half of Daniel's symbolic 70th week. And at the end of that time, Jesus is going to come back, and the time for proclamation and repentance will be over. 1260, 42 months, three and a half years, three and a half days, all ways to describe the church age or the back half of Daniel's 70th week. So what fuels them? We know they go in the authority of Christ to preach, but what fuels the church as she is preaching in the last half of Daniel's 70th week? What's the power behind the testimony of the church? Well, this is where we look to verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, this is language clearly borrowing from Zechariah chapter 4, undeniable. 
So we go to Zechariah 4, verse 2. Here's what it says. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? So we've got two olive trees, just like Revelation 11.4. We've got a lampstand, which has become two lampstands to match the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Keep going, Zechariah 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel is the kingly figure who serves as governor, and he was the one charged to rebuild the temple. Keep going, Zechariah 4, verse 14. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Well, who are the two anointed ones he's talking about? So far in Zechariah, we've only met Zerubbabel, right, in Zechariah 4. Well, we've got to go back to Zechariah 3 to know who the other anointed one was. It's Joshua the high priest. Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Joshua the high priest, he is the high priest, the spiritual leader uh, at the time of Israel's return from exile. So together, Zechariah 4 sees Zerubbabel, a royal figure, and Joshua, a priestly figure, standing as anointed ones. Zerubbabel, the royal governor, will build. Joshua, the holy priest, will lead in worship. By associating these two witnesses in chapter 11 with those two anointed figures from Zechariah 4, what we're learning is that these witnesses are not just prophets. They are that because they're going to be um, prophesying for the Lord, proclaiming for the Lord for the 1260 days. But they're not just that. They also have a kingly and priestly aspect to their ministry like Zerubbabel and Joshua. And certainly this squares with what we know of the church in the rest of Revelation, does it not? Revelation 5 verse 10 says, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We are co-heirs as believers of God's majestic kingdom. Co-heirs. We are priests in the service of the Lord. We have full access to God through Christ. And we are prophets who proclaim the salvation of the Lord, warning of the judgment that is to come, and also pointing people to the eternal life that's available in Jesus. And as the church, filled with royal priestly witnesses, goes about her prophetic ministry for 1260 days, she burns like a lampstand. Well, a lampstand can't burn without oil, so where's the church going to get her oil from? Well, a lampstand gets its oil from olive trees, thus the importance of the olive trees being there with the lampstands. If the lampstands are the witnesses, another way of describing the church, then what is the olive oil that keeps the lamps of the witnesses burning? What's the olive oil that keeps the lamps of the church lit? Well, of course, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit, by the way, who God says will help Zerubbabel in his rebuilding of Jerusalem. Remember Zechariah 4.6? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so it is with the church that during this time, during the age of the church, we will not advance the kingdom by our own might and by our own power, by our programs, by our ideas. It will be by the same spirit who empowered the rebuilding of the walls as Israel left exile. It will be by the same Spirit who rested on our Lord as he proclaimed liberty to the captives. And it will be by the same Spirit who empowered the witness of the apostles at Pentecost. This is the one who empowers your mission and your witness as the church. The any gospel preaching church that says, praise God, kingdom work has been done here, has to turn around and say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for fueling the work that was done. Without you, none of it would happen question is, will the message be accepted? Well, we know the answer to that. Of course it won't. We saw that last week, right? The church is the measured temple. The outer court is not measured because it belongs to spiritual Gentiles, unbelievers with uncircumcised hearts who do not know the Lord. They cannot draw near to him because they have not repented of their sin and trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus. 
So what is the unbelieving world then doing during the last half of Daniel's 70th week? Well, last week we saw they're trampling the church. They're trampling the outer courts of the temple. They hate the gospel. They hate the God at the center of the gospel. Therefore, they trample the courts. Well, here we look at verse 7, and we've got opposition again. This time, instead of trampling, we get our first look at one of the great enemies of Christ in Revelation. He hasn't shown up yet. It's the first time that he rears his dumb little head. All right? It's the beast. We hate the beast. We're really going to get to know the beast in Revelation 13, and we'll hate him even more once we get to know him there. We don't have time to go deep tonight. I just want to quickly say that in the fourth cycle, what you're going to see is Satan and his followers trying to counterfeit the work of God, much like Pharaoh did in Egypt, right, when he and his magicians tried to counterfeit the work of God. Satan, the dragon, will try to counterfeit the work of the Father. The false prophet, the Antichrist, will try to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. And we'll see the mangy beast rising up from the bottomless pit, rising up from hell to counterfeit Jesus the Son. So the beast is the direct opponent of the Son in the upcoming cycle. Let me pull up just one verse from that cycle, from Revelation 13, 7, which says, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Sounds like a powerful government, right? And that's why we believe the beast represents any government that would try to come against the church and stop the advance of the gospel. Revelation 13.7 parallels Revelation 11.7. Listen to 11.7. It says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Very much similar to the way um, the war on the saints is described in Revelation 13.7. Another reason why I believe we're definitely dealing with the church in Revelation 11. The beast is a symbol of these oppressive governments that persecute the church. It comes from the bottomless pit, which tells us that this opposition from these governments, it's not just about money. It's not just about politics. It's not just about power. It runs deeper than all that. However the world might look at the opposition of governments against the church, and they might diagnose it and say, well, the government in, in the Sudan, they oppose the church because of this, and the government in China opposes the church because of this. We know the beast right rises from the bottomless pit. Underneath all that, it's Satan, right? The reason that these governments oppose the gospel is because of Satan. This state-sponsored hatred of the church, is, church, it's satanic. This is prophesied about in Daniel 9.27, when Daniel talks about the one who makes desolate. That prophecy, I didn't have time to get into this last week, so I'm glad I do today. That prophecy, I think, specifically refers to Titus, the Roman uh, governor who would come in and, and with his troops would destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And we know that's the case because Jesus tells us that in Matthew 24, 15. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. So Jesus is saying that what's going to happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD, that's what Daniel was talking about in 927. That being said, I believe that that destruction, when you see Titus and the Roman troops trampling the temple in 70 AD, it's a snapshot of what Satan the desolator wants to do to the New Testament temple throughout the entire age of the church. He wants to trample it. What you see Titus do to the temple in 70 AD is what Satan wants to do to us throughout the entire church age. He's the desolator and he wants to bring desolation. So I don't see these verses as taking place purely in the future. The Revelation 11 is taking place in the past, and it's taking place all around us right now. The scriptures are showing us that as the church witnesses in this age, Satan will oppose the witness. He will incite the governing authorities to persecute the church, to try to snuff out the witness, and it is done with a Titus-like desolation. And we have seen this in the history of the church. For the believers sitting in the Asia Minor churches... And they hear John talk about the beast rising from the bottomless pit. They went, oh, that's Rome. We know who that is. It, it, it's the Romans who, who crucified our Lord, and now they're trying to kill us because we will not bow down to Caesar as a god. We know who that is. When the followers of John Wycliffe, the Lollards in England, 
when they heard Revelation 13, Revelation 11, they heard about the beast, they went, oh, it's the king of England. The one who wants to burn us because we're teaching the Lord's Prayer to our children in the English language. When Afghani believers today who are hunted and killed for their faith hear the beast, they go, oh yeah, it's that uh, extremist Islamic government we've got here that allows ISIS and the Taliban to run amok and to kill our brothers and sisters. That's who that is. We know who that is. And if our country were to tell us that we can no longer exercise our religious liberty that so many of you have fought for, if they were to tell us we cannot gather for worship and we cannot proclaim the gospel, then the beast would be the government of the United States of America. Even now we've got Christians in our country who experience cases of persecution, nothing like what our Afghani or Chinese brothers and sisters are experiencing, but certainly there are Christians in our nation who are treated unfairly for their faith by our government in certain contexts and situations. But the enemies of the church ought to think twice before they start shooting guns at us and trying to take machetes to our necks. Because look at what John writes in verses 5 and 6. He says, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. I want to encourage you, go online, just, just Google, Google image search, two witnesses, Revelation 11, and you will see actual images of, of two people standing there with fire coming out of their mouth consuming people. Okay, so if you want like a visual of this, uh, of this symbolism, you can find it on the Google image search. Uh, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Does this mean that when your coworker persecutes you, that you're just going to be able to like point at their bottled water and turn it to blood and be like, well, how do you like that? All right, that's what just happened to your Dasani. All right, don't mess with me. I'm a believer in the Lord. No, obviously not. Does it mean that when you share the gospel with your unbelieving friend and they go, I don't even have any friends with you anymore if you believe this, that you just go, whoo, like, you know, and just, just consume them with fire? No. Okay, so, so I don't think we're talking about literal fire and literal plagues here. I think that the language is meant to draw our attention again back to the Old Testament. So no doubt this business of the fire uh, has to, to draw our attention back to 1 Kings 18. And this is why so many people think of Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 challenges the prophets of Baal and Asherah at Mount Carmel. Elijah says to King Ahab, why don't you send your 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to Carmel? See, see, here's the thing about that world. It was very polytheistic. And what they believed is, we've got our gods, and if we beat somebody in war then our gods are better than their gods, but we still want to respect their gods, so we'll like add our gods into, or their gods into the pantheon of our gods. So Israel, as they had gone to war with these different people around them, started taking some of these gods and going, well, we'll just put them on the mantle too, right there next to Yahweh. And of course, the one God of the universe is not having that. So that's the situation we're in. They, they've added Baal and Asherah to the mantle, and they're bowing down to them, and they're like, yeah, if we want crops, you know, we've got to worship Baal and Asherah. And so we got hundreds of their prophets against just one prophet of the Lord, Elijah. And the prophets of Baal, they set up a sacrifice for their God. They scream at it for hours. They're mutilating themselves. Nothing happens. And Elijah's like, maybe he's using the bathroom. You know? Maybe he's taking a nap. I don't know. He's totally mocking them. And then he prepares his offering. And just to add a little drama to it, he covers the whole thing in water and then fire from heaven consumes the altar and licks up all the water. It's a showdown, and God wins, and it's not close. And his enemies see his consuming fire rain down, and the people of Israel know the Lord is God, and Baal is nothing, and Asherah is nothing. Verse 6 is all about Moses. It's referring to the miraculous deeds that God did through Moses during the Exodus. It was the same thing, right? Instead of Ahab, you had, you had Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his magicians setting themselves up. We're more powerful than God. But in the end, God beats the land and the people and Pharaoh down with plagues until they let the people go 
until he changes his mind and gets washed away in the sea, right? I mean, Pharaoh, if you read that whole narrative, watch it, read it, he's so out of control. He does not have control at all. His heart is literally putty in the hands of God, hardened and softened at God's will. And in the end, he's washed away in defeat. God's people stand victorious. It's just like 1 Kings 18. There's a showdown. God wins. It's not close. And everybody knows there's one Lord over the, all the earth. It's not Pharaoh. So I don't see these verses, again, as depicting two literal prophets who will pour literal fire from their mouths and literally strike the earth with plagues if people try to stop their witness, but instead, two symbolic witnesses that represent the church. And if you want to mess with the witness of the church, you want to try to get in the way of it, you want to try to stop it like the governments of the world are prone to do, well, it's a really bad idea. Because we are preaching this message of life and repentance and salvation and judgment in the same spirit as Moses and Elijah. And if you want to come up against it, you will get the same result as the enemies of Moses and Elijah. God will consume you. Maybe not now. In his mercy, he may let you live now. But if you mess with the church in her witness, you have made yourself a terrible enemy in the God of the universe. And yet, verses 8 through 10 show us the world will not stop. The beast is relentless. As suicidal as it is, just keeps trying to fight against God, keeps trying to harm his witnessing ambassadors, keeps trying to stop the church. And so the beast will kill the witnesses, and their bodies are in the streets of the great city in verse 8. We're talking about martyrdom here. We're talking about people who have lost their lives for Jesus. And over the last 2,000 years, from Stephen to Paul to Tyndale to five Nigerian believers who had their heads cut off on video by ISIS in December of 2019, the authorities of the world have sought to stop the gospel by killing those who are giving its witness. John says their body is in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where Jesus was crucified. You're like, this is very confusing. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Why is the great city being called Sodom in Egypt? Sodom is the city of sin in the Old Testament. Egypt, mentioning is really odd here because it's not even a city, right? It's a country. Nonetheless, it is a symbol of rebellion against God. You could say that Sodom and Egypt are the two greatest symbols of opposition to God in the Old Testament, and we sadly have to say that Jerusalem is the greatest symbol of opposition to God in the New Testament because it's the place where his son was murdered. So what's all this about? If the witnesses are the church, why are they dead in Jerusalem, which is being called Sodom and Egypt? Here's Joel Behe on this. He says, Jerusalem is not to be seen as a literal city, but as a symbol of the place where Christ was crucified. The city is constantly reappearing in history. It appears under different names, such as Sodom, Egypt, Babylon, Rome, New York, Paris, and London. The city is a symbol of any place where men and women, egged on by the beast from the pit, shout against Christ, crucify him, crucify him. This opposition appears wherever men and women, motivated by the devil, set themselves up against Christ and his people. See, what happened when Jesus was crucified? We know the Jewish authorities wanted him dead, but who ultimately did the business? It was the Romans, right? They lobbied the Romans until they got their way, and it was the Romans, the beast, that rose up to kill the Son of God. And what the beast longs to do is to crucify him over and over and over and over and over again. If it could kill Jesus infinite times, the beast would sign up for it. The beast loves, loves to stand over Jesus and think that it is victorious, right? And so the beast wants to crucify Jesus, but we know the beast can't crucify Jesus over and over again. He died, he resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. One day he will return and he will judge the world in righteousness, but he will not die again. We know that, right? Since it can't crucify him again, what does it seek to do? Hurt his body, his church, his people. If I can't crucify the Lord, well, then I will try to cut the head off of its body. And so the church falls dead in the streets, and they celebrate it like Christmas. Look at verses 9 and 10. Those who dwell on the earth refuse to give the witnesses a dig the dignity of, of having a proper burial. 
right? It's like after Mussolini died in World War II, they left his body hanging from the traffic lights so that it would have no dignity, so the birds would eat it. And that's what they want here. No dignity for these witnesses. They want their bodies in the streets so they can rejoice over the death of the witnesses. They can give each other presents. They can have this big celebration that the witnesses were killed. And they rejoice because the scriptures say that the gospel witness, it was a torment to them. And that's true. The gospel we preach, unbelievably, because we love it so much, it's so glorious to us, but unbelievably, it is a torment to the world. Because it walks into the the world's world, if you will, and it says, okay, you think you run this, and you get to call all the shots in your life, and you get to be the you that you decide you want to be? You can decide anything these days, right? You can decide what your gender is going to be. You can decide, um, you know, uh, what you're going to believe, and you can decide who God... All the choices are yours, and nobody gets to define truth for you. That's what our culture is told. And then... We come in and we say, actually, there is one God over all the earth and he is the one who owns all authority. And if you don't recognize that, you will be judged under his authority in the end. We come into their lives where everyone has told them that they can live however they want and we say, no, actually, you need to admit that God is right and you were wrong. And you need to repent of your sin and surrender You need to bow your knee to Jesus as the Lord. You need to give up on your agenda. Your morality, it's warped. It's way off. You need to admit that and agree with God and turn from it. Surrender to His way of living. You must put your trust in the cross and in the resurrection. And you must reject and renounce any idol you have been trusting in. And so when we show up and we preach that message... They respond with violence. It makes no sense, right? It's a message of love. It's a message of salvation. It's a message that says no matter what you have done, you can come to Jesus and be saved. And they hear it as a message of hatred because sin has warped their minds to hear it that way. Therefore, they take a sword to the church and they dance over her corpse in the streets. I mentioned that brother Joel Beakey earlier. His work on Revelation is indispensable to me. So good. And he offers three examples in his commentary from recent history of times in which the world took the sword to the church and celebrated her apparent death. From 1928 to 1941, the Soviet Union had an anti-religion campaign where they burned down churches and they killed people like me, people like Pastor Ben, Pastor David. They killed the clergy. And as they did it, they celebrated the death of Christianity and they announced the birth of scientific atheism which they taught in their schools and they taught through their media. Mao, the leader of China for much of the last century, killed somewhere between 40 and 80 million people through all sorts of terrible means. And many of them were Christians because the Chinese Communist Party wanted to stamp Christianity out of China. It should be said that there's a massive underground church movement in China today, and they failed. Famously, the French deist Voltaire celebrated that in his lifetime, Christianity is almost dead. He was so excited about it. He was like, a couple generations after me, this thing's done. Nobody's going to read the Bible. Nobody's going to go to church. Christianity will die out like Zoroastrianism. It'll just be just gone. Just an old relic of Western society. 100 years after he died, his house was being used as a Bible storage facility. You cannot make that up. That is awesome. All three of these are examples of how the world wants to kill the church, wants to leave our body dead in the streets to be eaten, to be picked over by the birds. And often they do, right? They come and they cut off the heads of our brothers and sisters. It's the way things have been. It's the way things are. It's how it's going to be till Jesus comes back. It's the nature of the church age. And we know we're dealing with the church age because we have the numbers to guide us again. How long are the witnesses dead in the streets? Three and a half days. Or the last half of Daniel's 70th symbolic week. 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, three and a half days, all ways to communicate the same period of time. But what happens after the three and a half days? Finally, some good news. It's been a dark few weeks. They're dancing on our graves, and then, as the last half of Daniel's 70th weekends, Jesus returns, and he is going to resurrect his church. 
Paul writes about it to the Thessalonians. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I don't know that resurrection really hit me fully until I stood at my mammy's grave. I'm trying to make my wife cry, and I apologize. I love her. I'm sorry. I'm going to make you cry right now. But Pat Lewis, my mammy, Katie's mammy, we stood at her grave two summers ago. And I remember her pastor, Brad Russell, saying, it's her final resting spot on this earth, but not her final resting spot. And it just kind of hit me. It just kind of hit me. I just thought, man, Mammy's going to stand up right out of this grave. She's going to stand up right out of this grave. She's going to be resurrected, as will all of the church, including the martyrs who were dead in the streets. They thought they were dead, but no. God will breathe life into them. He will resurrect his people as he has promised. It's real. It is going to happen. If you want to think about what it might look like, Ezekiel 37 gives us a picture. And I think that this text is, is meant to draw our attention back to it, where the hand of the Lord's upon Ezekiel, and there's this dr- valley of dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And that's a picture of new covenant resurrection and what's going to happen when Jesus returns and the church rises again. An exceedingly great army. And when the church is resurrected, the people who were rejoicing are now afraid. They see the church go up to heaven, not in a secret rapture, but a very public rapture, and they know we're in big, big trouble now. So then in verse 13, there's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city has uh, uh, fallen, dies. 7,000 uh, are killed. And after the earthquake, anybody who's not killed is terrified all over again as they give glory to the God of heaven. And we'll wrap it up here, um, kind of land the plane here and, and as we head toward the end. Uh, but, but track with me because I want you to see what, what, what I think is happening in this text. And, and I don't think it's quite so obvious by the plain sense reading of it, but I think when we look at what's going on around it, it's going to make sense. The earthquake you see here is a sign to us that the second coming is happening. The end is underway. At the blowing of the seventh trumpet, we will have kingdom come, the judgment of Satan, the judgment of evil, the beginnings of the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal age of glory. Uh, That's going to be uh, not next week, got a members meeting next week. It'll be the week after that, and I look forward to it, right? We finally get the the most full picture of heaven that we've gotten thus far uh, we'll get in two weeks. But we know this is the end because it follows the pattern that we saw in the seals and the pattern that we will see in the bulls. So so track with me here. The sixth seal was the seal that marked the end, the second coming. What happened when it was opened? When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Right? Sounds familiar. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. 
Same goes for the seventh bowl, which also represents the second coming. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So same thing happening in, in each instance, right? With, with the seals, with the trumpet, and with the bowls. There's an earthquake, and that signals the end. That signals the arrival of the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord occurs, we're told 7,000 are killed and a tenth of the city falls. I think these numbers are a reference to 1 Kings 19 and to Amos 5 and to Isaiah 6. 1 Kings 19. The Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there was this remnant of 7,000 faithful in Elijah's day. And then the tenth, I think, is a reference to a faithful remnant in the days of Isaiah and Amos. It says in Amos 5, For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Isaiah 6, 13, uh, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. In the Old Testament, these numbers represent a faithful remnant. But now final judgment has come. And what was true in the Old Testament has been flipped on its head in the New. Now, the numbers that represented a faithful remnant that remained at the bottom, it's flipped on its head. Now, those numbers represent a portion of those who dwell on the earth who oppose the Lord who are going to die right off the bat. So instead of a remnant that remains on the bottom, we got people that are going down right off the top because the patience of the Lord is up. This is it. It's final judgment. All of the world and everyone who's lived in history is being called to account. Those numbers used to represent life. Now in judgment, they represent death. Not a redeemed remnant, but the first fruits of judged unbelievers in the world, even before final judgment comes. And then verse 13 says, Anyone who does not die is terrified and gives glory to God. And, and this is where I don't think this means the way that it reads right off the bat. Initially, it looks like worship. But is that really the response of the unbelieving world in Revelation? Is that how the world responds to God's judgment with, with, uh, with worship? No. In Revelation, we see that they respond to the judgment of God, even His final judgment, with fear and with hard-heartedness. In fact, I don't think we see anywhere in the Bible that just before final judgment comes, a portion of humanity is killed and then everyone left repents and worships. Like, whatever four, uh, the, whichever one of the four views you ascribe to, right, that's none of them. Okay? So, in Revelation, the pattern is the opposite. With, with the seals and with the bowls and with the trumpets, we see the same thing. There's an earthquake, there is judgment, and then there is a response to God that is... Uh, begrudging, all right? And so let's see it. Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and uh, among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Their response is begrudging. They recognize that it's, that it's God on the throne, right? Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. We know he's there, but we don't want to see him. And also, hide us from the wrath of who? The lamb. We know who he is. We know he's the lamb. It's proven now, but we don't want to see him. So the creation that we have worshipped and we have traded in for the Creator, we want that to fall on us. We don't want to see the one seated on the throne in the Lamb. Begrudgingly, they admit who He is, but they would rather die than give Him worship. When the earthquake comes in chapter 16 with the seventh bowl, how do the people of the earth respond? It says, "...in great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people..." It's terrifying. "...and they cursed God for the plague of the hail." They curse God. Creation is coming undone. Hail is killing people as it falls from the sky. It's final judgment. It's the second coming. And people are talking to God. They're recognizing Him as God, but they're cursing Him. 
So then in keeping with that pattern, I don't think the glory in 11.13 is worship. I think it's the people who dwell on the earth bowing their knee to Christ the Lord, but they're doing it in judgment. They're admitting who he is, but they're not joyful. They're glorifying Christ in a submissive admittance, not a faith-filled confession. Philippians 2, 9-11 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. You either do it in faith-filled worship, or you bow your knee in bitter judgment. But either way, God's going to get the glory. As horrible as it is that many will perish in their sins and their rebellion, we end tonight by rejoicing that the church will be vindicated. How much do we rejoice knowing we're co-heirs with Christ, that we are a kingdom of priests, that we are going to reign with God forever? Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In the same way that the dragon used the beast to pierce the lamb and then rejoiced, thinking that the lamb was slain. The dragon uses the beast to pierce the lamb's bride, the church, and they rejoice, thinking that Christ's body has been killed. But in the same manner that our Lord was raised, we will be raised. And while they may dance over our bodies in the street, in the end, we will be the ones that dance. And they will be the ones bowing in defeat. We will have life. They will have death. We will overcome they will be overcome. We are victors in Christ. They will be conquered. So when you see your brothers and sisters getting their heads cut off on your television screens, or when the governments around the world say that we can't preach, don't lose hope. When it feels like the church is being persecuted in this country, and it feels like the gospel light is fading in this country, don't lose hope. When you feel like our own community is being overcome by the darkness, don't lose hope. Because even though they may respond with vitriol to the gospel that we preach, the sting of death is gone and we will be vindicated in the same pattern of Christ. We witness like him, we suffer like him, and in the end we reign with him. Therefore, be faithful and keep witnessing. Don't lose hope. In two weeks, we will see heaven. Father God, thank you for this time. I thank you, God, for this message. I know that tonight was longer, and thank you for everyone's patience, God. I pray it's been good for us to see, Lord, that while the world wants to kill the church, Lord, you will see to our vindication. We will be raised in the same way that your son was raised. And I pray, God, that as Thursday morning comes tomorrow, we would just be all the more fired up to go out and to tell and to preach and to share the good news and to be kind in the name of Christ and uh, to, to do good works in the name of Christ that they would glorify our Father in heaven, to go and be the light of the world and to go and be the salt of the earth as you have called us to be, knowing that the worst possible thing they could do to us, to cut our heads off and dance over our bodies in the streets, it will be undone, that your people will rise again, that the breath the Lord of the universe will come into our lungs and that we will have eternal life, Lord. May the truth of the future and the reality of resurrection compel us to be faithful witnesses here and now, no matter what they may bring against us. In your name we pray. Amen.